you have to wade through the hype because when somebody talks about going digital or going cloud, those terms are so incredibly vague. They can mean a lot of different things. And so dig in and better understand what does digital mean for you? Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Where are you on your cloud journey? Are you in the concourse ready to board the plane? Or are you in the middle seat on a crowded plane? Or maybe you're well on your way and you're starting to dream about your destinations. No matter where you are on your journey, you will gain some helpful insights from today's episode. I am joined by Ryan Brubaker. Ryan is a CIO who is well-versed in taking journeys. He's the CIO of Seven Corners, a leader in the travel insurance industry. Ryan and his team have been on that journey to the cloud and have some great stories to tell and insights to share. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Ryan, I, I enjoy our conversations so much, and I always walk away with nuggets. But before we dive into the nitty-gritty of your cloud journey, I'd love for you to share your background with our listeners. You, you've had a pretty varied background, not only as CIO, but CFO, and COO as well. So take us on your career journey a bit. Yeah, so one of the things that I've always enjoyed was challenges. And I've always believed in just signing up for things that you're terrified to do or seem bigger than you can do uh, because it forces you to learn and grow. So I started out my career, well, I started. I got a degree from Purdue, uh, bachelor's in management with a minor in information systems. Uh, knew I liked computers, knew I wanted to be a, a management, a leader someday. So, uh, but you don't get your first job out of college as a manager. So I had the minor in information systems and was always passionate about computers. So I got my first job out of college in Chicago at Deloitte and I was in the enterprise risk management group. So we did attack and penetration testing, network security, business continuity planning, uh, those kinds of things. And really enjoyed that. That was on, on the kind of the hardware networking side. Then later in my career, I actually kind of transitioned into a software engineering role then spent the rest of my pre-management years as a software engineer, tech lead, that kind of role. And then in 2005, I was invited to a CIO role where I kind of got to bring back together now my software and my hardware roots uh, and do all of that and manage an entire like IT department. So pulled that together. During that time, I also knew I wanted to grow my career over time. And so I thought having an MBA was going to be important. So I went and got an MBA from IU, uh, but don't worry, I'm a Boilermaker through and through, <laughs> but uh, got my MBA from IU downtown Indianapolis at IUPUI uh, while I was working. After that, I ended up actually in consulting again, uh, this time not as a consultant like I was at Deloitte, but running a consulting practice. So I got to actually help sell consulting engagements and manage the consulting teams. And so that brought back some a different side of consulting, which was really great experience. That led me ultimately to Seven Corners, and at Seven Corners, the owners were effectively trying to build a new C-suite to help take the company to the next level, and I got to be a part of that. And that's actually how I ended up in those interim roles that you mentioned, because as we were building out that C-suite, while we were looking for a CFO, I got to spend six months in that seat 
while we were looking for a COO, I got to spend six months in that seat. So I knew they were interim positions that they weren't permanent, but man, was it exciting to just, you know, tackle those things and, and better understand what it's like to sit in those seats it was just very valuable. Um, since then, actually, our COO has left. And so now I'm actually the EVP of operations in addition to being the CIO. So I actually still live in that kind of COO world, which I really enjoy because it's just always been been fun to me to just constantly be challenging myself and growing my skill set. What a great experience to know what it's like to sit in those seats. And uh, I, I imagine that has helped the IT side of the job that you have to understand some of those challenges. One of the things you mentioned that I'm really curious about, and then I promise we will get into your cloud journey. You mentioned while you were in school that you knew you wanted to be in management and leadership. And I think that's unusual. How did you know? What in you or what coursework were you taking or kind of your personality? What said, I want to be a leader. I want to be a manager. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it just comes from my enjoyment of people. I'm a very social person. I'm actually not super extroverted, but I'm very social, which is a whole nother conversation, another podcast, (laughs) I think. Um, But I'm I'm extremely social and I enjoy environments where I can help lead change, uh, improve processes. I love talking about Enneagram and DISC and PI and all those different personality profiles, strengths finder and all that stuff. And so that honestly was in me even even in high school, I was, you know, leading Bible studies at church and uh-huh. stuff like yeah, that. So yeah. I always just kind of knew that I really enjoyed the idea of taking things or people and helping them become, you know, greater, the, the sum is greater than the individuals, right? That's very cool. Like I say, I, I think that's unusual. I think a lot of people that go into tech, they want their hands on, they want to be racking and stacking, or they want to be coding and they don't, they're not really thinking about that next step. So it's great that you had that as your vision. And uh, I can't wait to see where it continues to take you, my friend. <laughs> I think that's going to be exciting. So let's do start at the beginning, though. Let's start at the cloud journey beginning. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are right there. They might have taken the first steps towards cloud, but they really don't know where to go from here. So talk to us about the decision-making process that you experienced as you were starting to look at cloud for Seven Corners? So I came to Seven Corners six years ago. And before that, I was uh, heading up a consulting practice at a consulting firm in Indianapolis. So I was already doing a lot of evangelism around the cloud. I was actually meeting with clients, building relationships with executives and, and high level people in our clients and talking to them about cloud because they wanted that advice. So I, I already kind of had to be versed leading that consulting practice in the cloud. So when I came to Seven Corners, it wasn't like at that point I needed to be convinced that the cloud was the future. Uh, it was yeah. you know, very apparent at that point that the cloud was the future to me. What was not apparent or what I think people really struggle with is the kind of cloud and they hear public cloud and all they hear is the word public. So that must be just like you know open source of all of our customers' data. Just all of those kinds of things are some of the things that we had to work through. So it wasn't as much, should we go to the cloud as how do we get to the cloud? Is it a hybrid? Is it private cloud? Is it public cloud? What's best for seven corners? What's best for our team? So the first thing we looked at obviously is like which cloud and we do a lot of work for the federal government. So like I walked into a very regulated industry and a very regulated environment because of those relationships with government customers. Yeah. My first inclination was, oh, I'm not going to be able to go to a public cloud. 
that was one of those myths that I actually had to debunk for myself and work through with the security team, work through with the federal government. I actually started finding, I uncovered these little nuggets of, wait a second, I actually am going to make my life easier if I'm in one of the public clouds. Or, I mean, a private cloud would be okay too, but certainly at the time I'm just sitting in a data center and some colo space. And I realized the amount of stuff that was actually on me that is taken off of me by a cloud provider was much greater than I thought. So here I am thinking it's, I can't go to the cloud because I have all this data and we have to be compliant with all of these regulations with the federal government. And then I start finding out all the stuff I'm going to not have to do anymore and how I'm going to meet certain audits and check boxes. And that opened my eyes up. So once we kind of realized we wanted to go public cloud, um, we essentially just looked at two, which was AWS and Azure. And Azure ended up being a fairly straightforward choice for us. Not every company would have such an easy decision, but for us, it was pretty straightforward because we had a fully custom app dev team that was all on .NET. We wanted to get in, we knew we needed to get into DevOps and all of the tools that Microsoft provides in Azure around DevOps were really highly compatible with everything we were doing in IIS and Microsoft technologies and platforms. So we also were a Microsoft shop on the productivity side, office suite, exchange, all of that stuff. It was just honestly, and at the time, and I think it's still true today, Amazon and AWS are on a race to the bottom right now on pricing. And so, I mean, I'm literally getting and was getting one email a week, maybe even an email a day about, hey, here, we just lowered your price on X usage. Hey, (laughs) consumption of this is now cheaper. And so it was one of those things where, you know, that's great thing about capitalism and competition is we're the lucky recipients of just, you know, I don't have to, I don't, I'm not a big enough company to go beat up Microsoft or, or AWS for better pricing. But yeah. when you have them both trying to compete for as much of the public cloud world as possible, they're just always lowering their prices. That's got to feel really good when you're thinking about that CFO hat you used to wear, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And that, and that's for sure. Being in the CFO and the COO roles definitely helped me because our jobs as CIO, we really are salespeople. We are selling people outside of IT on yeah. everything we can provide and how we can help the company. Um, and so that's, that was very important for me to understand that wearing that hat. So certainly yeah, knowing that pricing was going to be good in Azure or AWS and that it was always getting better and not worse, at least for now, right? I'm yeah, sure years yeah. from now it'll start changing, but for right yeah. now, the prices keep going down. So it just made a lot of sense from a compatibility, from a technology compatibility to go with Azure. How were you able to sell this idea of cloud and public cloud to the rest of the executive team? You mentioned you drew on your experience from the consulting world, but how did you translate that into pitching this to your peers on the executive team? So I'll answer the question first with what I didn't do. So what I didn't do was take all of our workloads and say this cluster has 180 VMs and this uh, setup has something else and and pull all of that together and then just open up calculators on the Amazon <laughs> website or on the Azure website and start filling those out. Uh, that's a trap that we often fall into. We fill out storage, compute all of that and start trying to compare it as if being in the cloud versus being on-prem or, or in, a, in a local colo facility or something like that is the same. And so then we just make it a math kind of discussion and we start calculating, okay, well, how much does my colo facility cost me? And the next thing you know, we're either talking ourselves out of it or we're going in with a very weak argument because the problem with that on its premise is it's not an apples to apples conversation. Mm -hmm. If you went to a a company in 1995 and said, someday everyone will just talk on 
uh, smartphone. They'll give out their cell phone number to everyone. They'll use Bluetooth headsets. And really, there's no point in having a desk phone anymore. They would have said, you're crazy. Like, I don't see how that could ever yeah, come about. Yeah. And so having the conversation more in those terms of what are the benefits of cloud as opposed to what you lose if you stay on-prem is really the argument that you need to make with your executive team. Because if, whether it's machine learning, bots, AI, all sorts of things that are enabled that you just didn't have access to in the data center, you start talking about those benefits and then they're going to say, well, I want that and I want that. Mm -hmm. And then that opens the conversation for you to explain, well, to have that, here is the transition we need to make. And it's like making a transition from an old desk phone to a, to a smartphone. And if we want to have access to our customers and provide those benefits to our customers, then we have to have this technology. And so then the discussion is about benefits and not about costs. I love that. The whole idea of shifting the conversation towards the benefits really allows you to make decisions based on your overall why. What are some of the benefits you discussed with your executive team? Okay, so one example is Azure Site Recovery, and obviously that's an Azure-specific technology, but I'm sure AWS and all the private clouds here in Indianapolis and in, in the Midwest have it as well. Um, but the idea with Azure Site Recovery is they will keep a warm spare in another region for you, and the cost is 25 bucks a month plus storage. So, you know, let's say you have a server running in North Central, which is Chicago, Maybe it's, it's not a server that's critical enough where you need full geo-global load balancing, high availability kind of thing, but you want to be able to just be up within a couple of minutes if something happens. It literally replicates all of your data to another region, let's say the West Coast or wherever you choose, and it just keeps the machine sitting there turned off so you're not paying for any usage, and it just keeps a warm spare at all times. It just replicates all of your data to that region. Mm -hmm. Literally 25 bucks a month plus, you know, depending on your storage size, you might spend another 25 or 50 bucks a month on storage. So yeah, yeah. the cost, if I'm talking to my executive team, okay, I could go get another cage in California. I could build out all of the connectivity. I could have a warm spare and it's going to cost me basically double what I'm paying, right? You just basically duplicate all of your costs. Right. Well, I'm, I'm in the cloud now. All of a sudden, I can do that with as many servers as I want. And I'm paying 25 bucks a month per server. And literally, it has a heartbeat monitor. And so if the, if the primary location goes down, it just spins up the other location. And now I'm still paying the same price because the machine in Chicago is shut down. So I'm no longer paying for usage of it. I'm only paying for the usage of the machine in, in Seattle, let's say. And I've been paying 25 bucks a month for this benefit. So that's an example of something where only the cloud can provide you that. That wasn't an option when you manage your own facilities. Did globalization come into this at all in your thinking, the ability to take seven corners and enable your customers, whether they're government or private sector, to interact with you on a global basis? Yeah, it played a huge role. I mean, as you, as you know, we're an international travel medical insurance company. So we provide insurance to people that are traveling within the US but also people who are traveling internationally. We provide medical insurance. And then we have a lot of people that are coming to the U.S. from other countries visiting, and they can buy short-term medical policies from us. So global reach was critical. So whether it's a content delivery network um, or whether it's that site itself being highly available globally, we use um, Azure Front Door to make sure that basically we're serving up our website and all of our e-commerce from the closest point to wherever the person is. I'll share another story that's kind of related to that. So our marketing team came to us and said, hey, we want to run a digital marketing campaign 
in India because we have a lot of people who travel from India to the US. Um, this was pre-pandemic, of course, and I can't wait for them to be traveling to the US again after this. Um, yes, this was pre-pandemic yes. and they wanted to invest. I, I won't give you the dollar amounts, but basically there, there was a significant dollar amounts that they wanted to invest in India. And the problem was they said, hey, our site is running, you know, uh, three and a half seconds response time in the US, but we're seeing like seven to nine seconds in India. Can you do anything about that? This was like a year and a half, two years ago. So I literally thought to myself, okay, pre-Azure, pre-cloud, I would have had to come to the executive team with a proposal, probably would have been in the neighborhood of minimum 100,000, but probably closer to 200,000. I would have had to work with companies in India, negotiate contracts, find colo space, buy servers, decide whether to fly team members to India or try to outsource it all and trust that it's gonna be done right. I mean, the involvement would have been massive. So then instead, because we had the cloud, we had about two hours of architecture discussions to design it, and then about one man hour of work to spin up basically another instance of all of our environment in India, in the Microsoft Azure India location. I think they have more than one, but anyway, one of them. And so total time, the actual duration was maybe a week or two from the time marketing made the request yeah. to when they had an environment in India. And lo and behold, once that was all set up, because we were using Microsoft's backhaul for all of our you know, data traffic, we, we were down to three and a half seconds, just like in the US, yeah, yeah. in India. Um, funny ending to that story is they actually did the test for about, I wanna say four or five weeks, and uh, it didn't do exactly what they wanted. And so they came back to us like it was no big deal and just said, hey, you can just turn all that off. It, it didn't work, we're not gonna keep investing in that spot. <laughs> and you know, they had no idea that I would have jumped across the table at my marketing VP and throttled him yes. had I spent a year and $200,000 plus making this happen for him. But because it took us a few hours and then we were able to, and by the way, I forgot to mention the cost, it added like $180 a month to our Azure bill or something like that to spin up India. Um, and, then, and then he comes back a few weeks later and says, it didn't work, you can tear it down. And we just said, okay. you know. 10 minutes of work that, and the, the uh, environment's That gone. agility, and I know that word just gets overused, and the ability to pivot. Again, another overused word uh, that we hear in our industry all the time, but what a great story of the ability to be agile, to pivot, and then pivot back. It's that whole fail fast mentality, and you were able to do that via the cloud. Another thing yep. that we hear Absolutely. a lot when we talk to IT professionals is the fear that, gosh, if, if my company goes to the cloud, I'm going to lose my job. So as much as you can share about seven corners, as you were on this journey, what happened to your IT staff? So we knew that um, as we moved to the cloud, there was a possibility that we would need less staff to manage it. And honestly, that wasn't something that we knew that wasn't something that was going to be like a day point in time you know, the, oh we'll just have this grand master plan and nine months from now we'll let go of a bunch of people mm -hmm. because it's way more complicated than that i mean as you're migrating to the cloud first of all your staff is learning a lot yeah. because the like, like i mentioned earlier it's like smartphone versus you know desk phone it's not the same and so like we tried to migrate a lot of our IaaS in the past platform as a service as we moved because we knew platform would be cheaper um, for better benefits so as your team is learning all of that, first of all, they're growing their skill set. 
Right. They're going to be more valuable at seven corners, even if at some point they aren't needed at seven corners because we do need less staff. Their career is going to be better off because they've learned cloud. It's not like it's not like cloud is going away or there's no cloud jobs out there. Right. Right. There's plenty right. of cloud jobs. So even if in your more microeconomic situation of your company, even if your company didn't need you anymore, you're going to have way better opportunity in the macro environment by having that skill set. So we, we kind of knew in the end that this was going to be a journey. And as we train people up and as they learn, they are going to grow their career and their skill set. Now, it did end up working out that on our infrastructure team, by the time we were done, which I should mention that our cloud journey ended up being about four years, we had like a three and a half year kind of plan, and it ended up taking a little longer than we would have liked. It ended up being about four years all told before we were completely in Azure. But over that four years, that was plenty of time that, you know, as people left through natural attrition, for whatever reason, better opportunities, we just didn't backfill certain spots. So we never did end up having any kind of a riff or layoff or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And, and I certainly think that the people that moved on for better opportunities, you know, th that's great. We, I know, I feel good that I enhanced their skill set because going forward, you know, the, the local networking and firewall and that kind of thing is not going to be the skill set that you need. It's, it's the cloud skill sets that you need. Yeah. That's a great way to look at it because I think the other thing that happens while you're on a cloud journey is sometimes during the journey, you need more people. You know, I've talked to uh, a couple of our uh, associates in the CIO network that we belong to, and they actually increased staff as part of their journey and then went through this uh, natural attrition. Again, they didn't experience any layoffs either, but there is that bump that you might need, whether it's a third party to, to be alongside you or whether it's additional staffing to manage both your current legacy infrastructure and your new cloud infrastructure. Did you see a bump at all as you were going on this path? Yeah, there were definitely times, I wouldn't say it was a big bump, but there were definitely times where we would just call in specialists. Mm -hmm. You know, we're fairly self-sufficient at Seven Corners. There's not a lot that we outsource, but what I love to outsource is when there's some like a knowledge gap, for example, where my team has just never seen something before at all. And it's not gonna be straightforward to just, you know, Google it and teach yourself. I mean, sure, let's uh -huh. bring in some experts, but then let's have them kind of augment the Seven Corners team so that they walk away with the knowledge that the experts bring in. So yeah, we brought in certain consulting firms or, or different vendors at times to just handle like a niche piece of moving something or understanding how to implement something, things like that we would get help with. One of the things we didn't talk about that popped in my head as you were talking, Ryan, is you, you talked about your journey was three and a half to four years, uh, kind of that time frame. So what's next? Where do you see seven corners going from a technology perspective where do you see cloud going in general do you have a do you have a crystal ball that you might uh look into and, and share where you think things are going yeah um all of my ideas are not revolutionary it's stuff that you can read in in any kind of trade journal of, of our industry but but we have a really huge focus now on customer experience now that we're in the cloud we have a lot of opportunity um for example a couple of years ago I guess it was maybe a year and a half ago, we implemented Sven. And Sven is uh, our lovable puffin. He is the mascot of Seven Corners. So we added actually Sven as our chat bot. And so when you go to sevencorners.com, if you want to talk to somebody or get more information, you can ask to chat and Sven is going to take your, take your question. And then if he needs to, he'll get you to a, a live person. On the back end, and I didn't mention Salesforce as part of our cloud journey, but on the back end, that's Salesforce Einstein. Uh -huh. And having those tools available, um, I would never try to build my own bot framework from, <laughs> you know, from the ground up or AI engine, yeah. right? 
So having those tools and those abilities with dials now, I mean, we, we talk about instead of ordering hardware, we just turn dials when we need more capacity, when we need auto scale, things like that. So as we think about how do we really enhance the customer, one of the things that I've been kind of preaching for the last five years at Seven Corners is no one cares about industry best practices. For example, if none of my competitors have a bot, and that's no longer an excuse for me to say, we don't need a bot because none of our competitors have a bot because Amazon has a bot, Uber has a bot. So no one cares that little old seven corners in the travel insurance industry doesn't have a bot. You, you could talk that way you know, in the 90s, maybe even a little bit into the 2000s. You could say, yeah, none of the other banks have this. So we as a bank don't need that. But the litmus or the bar is no longer your industry. The bar is what everybody yeah. uses every day, yeah. which is Uber and Lyft and Amazon and Best Buy. Like that is what they expect their experience to be. So that's basically the experience that we're trying to deliver to our customers at Seven Corners, even though none of our competitors have it yet. For example, we added WhatsApp. I mean, especially being international, we use WhatsApp like crazy with our customers. We added texting. You can actually just text Seven Corners a question and we will just respond to you via text. People love that. People don't want to sit on the phone for five minutes and wait on hold or whatever to get an answer. They can just text us. And the cool thing is on the back end, that's all Salesforce omni-channel. I mean, our, our internal staff, they just believe they're typing like a live chat session. They don't know that it's texting back or it's using WhatsApp back to the customer or it's using just our live chat through Spin on our website. So bringing the experiences to our customers through our mobile app, through WhatsApp, through texting, self-service, the ability to modify their policies, change their policies, that's really the future for us. And so it's not as much about any specific technology that's going to be huge. Um, it's about delivering to our customers just the experience that they want and the way they want. It's, it's that consumerization that's driving so much. I, I love the way you, you describe that, Ryan, that it's not about your competition. It's about what your customers expect because they live this technology. And I know I've quoted this a zillion times on Status Go uh, already that during the pandemic last year, we saw uh, just in the retail technology space, we saw a 10-year adoption occur in three months. Technology was adopted in three months. It would have taken 10 years. And I'm sure you're yep. starting to see that as travel opens back up. And I love the idea that you can text back and forth and use WhatsApp because the last thing people want to do when they're traveling, because they're, they're possibly on vacation, right? And the last thing they want to do is spend an hour on a phone, right? right. They just want to be able to text for the right. answer. But one of the topics that we haven't talked about that I'd love to talk just a little bit about as you were on your cloud journey is security. And you mentioned this at the beginning that as you dug more and more into it, you found a lot of things that were taken off your plate. And I think what you were driving at there was that shared security model that so many of the cloud providers have. What was your experience with learning that yourself, having your teams learn about that? And then maybe even a little bit, how did you learn to trust the other side of the shared security model? So we proved it out, <laughs> at least to my satisfaction. What I mean by that is we started by looking at, okay, as we're moving to Azure, what are our security capabilities? Because we had a SOC at the time. Uh, with managed threat detection and all that stuff. And so we knew we could always have the option of just leaving all of their stuff installed in Azure, send all their stuff back through their SIM tools, let them do all of, you know, basically 
what I would call legacy sock. Mm -hmm. Just do it the way you always did it on any platform, any, any infrastructure and just, but now it's just sitting in the cloud, but then they're still doing all the stuff the same way. But I knew all along there was probably an opportunity to save money. And I suspected that I was going to be able to not need as much direct security. Once we moved, we started looking at Azure Sentinel and all of the Azure security dashboards. And because the way I look at it is the vendor, whomever it is, mm -hmm. whether it's a local company or it's, you know, AWS Azure, they have a very vested interest in you not being ha hacked. Because regardless of them just saying, hey, we're just a cloud provider, it, that's on the customer to provide their own security, it's going to hurt them if somebody, you know, walks out with hard drives and stuff isn't encrypted at rest, yeah. you know, that, it's going to come back to them. So there is this kind of what I call this perimeter, this invisible perimeter that they have to build to protect their own integrity yeah. And, yeah. and reputation. And so I always suspected there was some level of security that I was getting for free. And of course, they're happy to charge you for Sentinel and other, you know, more in-depth security tools that they provide on the platform. So we actually migrated off of the SOC that we were at because I wanted to find a SOC that would become more cloud native, if that makes sense. Okay. All of the SOCs that I had worked with were cloud new. Like they were trying to figure out how do we pour everything we do into a cloud? And I wanted a provider that would think differently about it and say, how do we become cloud native? Mm -hmm. How do we use like the built-in Azure Sentinel SIM tool? instead of just forcing our own SIM tool that we've been giving our customers for years. So I found a vendor who was actually here in Indianapolis who was phenomenal and willing to do that. And they said, hey, we will do like a 90-day pilot with you where we will monitor Sentinel and we will use Sentinel, all the native Azure security tools, um, which will be cheaper than you using us for those tools, yep. but then we'll still be your SOC. And we actually, after 90-day pilot, found, and they were very transparent about this, there were no actionable alerts in 90 days. And so we went from thousands and thousands of alerts pre-cloud with probably 10 to 20 actionable alerts per week pre-cloud to 90 days with no actionable alerts. You know, so we're talking lows and mediums and stuff like that. You know, unlikely logins from random countries, which were automatically blocked. I mean, basically everything that they would have acted on. Azure had done for us. And so they didn't even need to wake us up at night or do anything or make any decisions. Credit to them, they're a phenomenal company and we actually now have them as our full emergency response uh -huh. team. But it was like, we didn't need a SOC anymore. We just need an emergency response yeah, team. Yeah. So they're there, they're still making money, but they're making money in a different way because we're not spending what we had to spend on a SOC anymore because of what we have in Azure. That's a great testament to security in the cloud that the tools are there. And the other thing that it's a testament to is the partnership that that organization felt with Seven Corners. And I think uh, you and I could talk for hours on uh, vendor partnership, and uh, maybe that's another episode of, of Status Go in the future. But I know we're also running out of time here. And as is usual, when you and I chat, we could go on for a, for a long time, man. I appreciate that. But Status Go is all about action. And I know you're a listener, so you know uh, that we like to leave our listeners with action steps that they can take. So what are one or two things that our listeners should do tomorrow because they listen to your stories and your insights today, Ryan? I would say a couple of things. One is you have to wade through the hype because when somebody talks about going digital or going cloud, those terms are so incredibly vague. They can mean a lot of different things. And so the first step is dig in and better understand what does digital mean for you? 
because digital means something different to every company and what their strategy is. Digital is really more of a buzzword than a, than a strategy, in my opinion. Um, but it's just more of a, an umbrella that encapsulates a whole lot of stuff. So dig in and kind of get through the hype and better understand, okay, if I were to go to the cloud, how, where would I even begin? And then the second thing I kind of mentioned earlier is focus more on benefits versus like trying to do some kind of a cost analysis as if it's apples to apples. It's not. Think about what the cloud would enable and then build your ROI off of that. Is it worth it for your company to be able to have a bot framework? Is it worth it for your company to be able to do machine learning? Um, is it worth it for your company to, to, to have these additional security capabilities that you can hand an auditor? Hey, here's, here's Microsoft's FedRAMP status, and then here's how we're layered on top of it, as opposed to starting from scratch. And think about all of those benefits in that apples and oranges world, and then build your ROI backwards from that. That is great advice. And I'll add in one of the insights you shared earlier is that ROI of the ability to pivot and be agile, because I think you saw firsthand how that worked. Ryan, I got to thank you so much for being on the program. I really appreciate your insights. I learn something every time you and I have a conversation, and I so appreciate you taking the time. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on. I always love chatting with you. To our listeners, if you have a question or want to learn more, visit intervision.com. The show notes will provide links and contact information. This is Jeff Tun for Ryan Brubaker. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find Intervision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.